Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. And this week, we have a great episode in store. I've got Nicole Mitchell for you. And Nicole used to be a pastor at a mega church, and now she is a stripper. So all your evangelical parents' worst nightmares come true. You know, this deconstruction, well, gosh, now she is a stripper, you know, that not many evangelicals would uh, sit that on the list of uh, top jobs to hold. Um, And so I am really excited to dive in and talk with her about her journey, about her deconstruction, about what she does now, um, about her spirituality. um, And I think you're going to love it. And so let's dive in to Nicole Mitchell. I'm really excited to talk to you because I talk to a lot of um, well, ex-Christians, um, ex a lot of different religions, and I talked to a lot of people that have come out of pastoring, but mm-hmm. I haven't talked of anyone that's taking your particular path, um, and you have quite a unique path. A lot of people I talk to have a lot of hang-ups, myself included, with purity culture, sexuality, mm-hmm. sex, all that different stuff, and so I'm really excited to talk to you because mm-hmm. you have clearly done some work in this area. <laughs> You know? Yes, I'm excited um, to talk to you too about it. So yeah, so I I think probably best to start off. I mean, I I read that you you did an uh, I've I've read a couple of things online about you. Uh, I don't know if that's ever a good way to find out about anyone. <laughs> um, I've kind of like followed you for a little while on Instagram, done different things like that. Um, but why don't you kind of give a rough overview of like maybe who you are and what you do, um, and then maybe we can go into the the journey that brought you there. Um, mm. But yeah, like, who is Nicole Mitchell? Hmm, great question. Uh, (laughs) Nicole Mitchell's ever-evolving. So right now, I am a pastor-turned-stripper. I used to uh, be on the pastoral team of a megachurch, and now I spend my time um, being paid to strip and create custom content and express myself in sensual and sexual ways, and I love it so much. And I also do life coaching business in addition to the stripping um, and inside of the stripping container, I have people who sign up for that through through there as well. And I'm wow. so happy with where I'm at right now. That's awesome. It's, it's funny to me, a lot of the pastors I talk to, you know, um, many people in the world of pastoring, that's it. Like that's all they know, all mm. they've done. And I talk to a lot of people that have like um, deconstructed their faith, maybe even completely deconverted and gone, I don't even believe in God at all. I'm completely atheist or at least pretty firmly agnostic away from Christianity. And they go, but I don't really know what to do. Cause I came out of high school into like a seminary. I was a youth pastor and associate pastor and a senior pastor, you know, like they're, they're only lived inside this church bubble. Um, and it's fascinating to see how different pastors approach, like what next. And I think mm. often a lot of them do kind of go down a, a road of things like life coaching and stuff. It feels like it, it's not the most incompatible thing for someone that has spent a lot of time pastoring people. What kind of pastoring did you do in, in, in this mega church? Yeah, so I we had several services because it was a mega church. So they had me on a team that did one of their weekly services on Thursday nights. And so I would prepare a sermon and lead there. And there's a team of three of us where we rotate. And then on special occasions, they'd have me come on the big stage on the weekends where we had three services. And that was always my favorite. I've always loved bright lights, big stages, large audiences. Yeah. And that was always so fun. You were born for the stage. I feel that way when I, I used to do a lot of public speaking before I became a lot more public about my personal faith. 
um, less people ask you to come and speak at conferences and churches that way. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've probably experienced this as well. Very, very small audience of church uh, churches that want you to come and speak now, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but there is something about it. And I'm introverted as well. Like people would not put two and two together, but there's something about getting on a stage, holding a microphone, seeing expecting faces and going, I'm going to be a part of helping these people move forward in their lives, change, grow, whatever. That's, that's a great feeling. It's, it's, it's an amazing it's such feeling. Such a good feeling. Yes. So how did you end up becoming a pastor? Was that something you always wanted to do or did you kind of stumble into it or? Great question. And you know, so because female pastor teaching as well, like not just, you know, yeah. like, well, the female pastor, well, you get to teach the like kids under 13, maybe, or maybe you could do the woman's oh, ministry, yeah. but you were, you were teaching, teaching, right? I mean, men. Yes. Were there. <gasps> yes. I'm laughing because you're speaking my childhood experience. Um, <laughs> yes. I grew up in the Baptist community here in the U S wow. and I was definitely taught that women cannot teach men. And there was always a debate about what point does a boy become too old for a woman to teach? It's so ridiculous now. So yeah, what I saw more than what I heard explicitly taught, what I saw and observed and absorbed as a child is women were always in the nursery with the babies. If more than that, they taught little kids in Sunday school or they were in the kitchen. So Mm -hmm. I learned very early on a woman or a girl cannot be a leader. A girl was supposed to be behind the scenes, always serving men. And I really took that to the core. And so I tried to fit that mold, this, this vision that I saw within my church and understanding as a child. And yet I was born as a natural leader. And even in those spaces where it's really conservative and, and limited for women, the male leaders and pastors would see that in me, would try to give me a little mm. bit of responsibility here in youth group and maybe share my testimony in front of church. Cause it's not really teaching. You're just talking and just whatever. Um, and went to a really You have to watch, you know, saying too profound in your testimony. <laughs> that it it <laughs> leaks yeah. into teaching. Like you've totally broken yes. some rule somewhere. Yes. Or you'll see people like remove the pulpit and put like a, a music stand for your notes. <laughs> yes. You're not technically preaching. It's just like, oh my word, the gymnastics we do it. If, if this if the stand holding your Bible costs less than $110. You're good. It's not teaching. Yes, exactly. Oh my word. So yeah, that was my whole life experience. And in college, like I fell in love with public speaking. I took all kinds of courses and trainings. And yet because of my paradigm where women are not allowed to be pastors, I called myself a motivational speaker because then Mm -hmm. I could speak to mixed genders and a co-ed room of all ages. And that was my end. But I had a deep passion for theology and Jesus and God. And so it's like, I'll weave it into my public speaking messages. Well, then it wasn't until my late twenties when my then husband introduced me to my first non-denominational church where they had women leaders. And it mm. was the first time I was exposed to that, which blows my mind now to be in the 21st century and finally enter an institution where you see female leaders, like a religious institution for me. And I was like hungry. And this was the first church I was a part of where when the pastor would speak, he would never say, you have to believe what I believe. He would actually explicitly say, you don't have to believe what I believe. This is just my opinion. Wow. And in all my churches before that, that was, I never heard a pastor say that and I had all kinds of questions growing up. But I learned, again, just by observing from an early age, you don't question the pastor. So all these questions I buried my entire life just came tumbling out every week after church. Me just like bombing this pastor with question after question after question. And it was through 
months of this that the male pastors were like, Nicole, do you realize you're a theologian? And I was like, mm. I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm a wife and I've never, or I'm a mother and I've never been to seminary, like three strikes before I've even started. Right. They're like, well, we don't believe that stops you. And I was like, what? And they're like, we would like to train you to raise you up to be a pastor. Are you interested? And I was just like, my heart was like, yes. So then the next three years, I was mentored by them and raised up, trained to be a preacher at the church. And that felt like a dream come true. Mm. Yeah. Wow. that That's incredible. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, that. I, to, in my experience, I work with this group of people for the last 10 years intensely. I mean, I've come across thousands and thousands of different churches in, in different contexts. And it is very rare for pastors to say things like, hey, this is just my opinion. You know, you're going to have to think of this yourself. You're going to have to come to your own conclusions. That's a pretty progressive stance. Um, so this church that's non-denominational, w- was it fairly progressive? Would it allow quite different views or was it, hey... hey this is just my opinion, but you have time to get in line, you know, to, to yeah. figure it out and, and come on board. Or or did it did it allow quite a bit of diversity itself, this church? Mm. That's a really good question. I The longer I was there and the more I started seeing behind the scenes what was happening, I realized, yes, there's space to have varying beliefs, but it really was based around the lead pastor's beliefs. So mm. when he would share his 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 different opinions, it was okay to hold a different opinion on that topic, but anything outside of that wasn't really okay. So for example, he and the leadership didn't believe being queer was okay. And you couldn't sure. be a pastor who was queer. So while, because they believe that there wasn't really room for much disagreement on that. And so I had to keep that very private about my sure. own identity as a queer person. But if it came to like pacifism, right? Where he was very like anti-war, which is very unconventional for a lot of churches. And so it's okay to have like different beliefs there. Yeah. So it really did center around the lead pastor's passions and beliefs, which is fine to a degree because you're the lead pastor, but also doesn't actually cultivate the space for everyone to kind of unpack what they were taught to believe and reconstruct a belief that system that works for them. It was yeah. very much formed around this pastor's personality and preferences. Sure. And presumably this pastor isn't like, you know, on Easter going and then Jesus died and rose again. Well, that's my belief. You can, you know, like <laughs> certain things were kind of no go topic, like maybe, yes. you know, LGBTQ plus affirming, not a place we're going to go where that's not on the yes. table. We're not having this conversation. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that, that that you identified as queer. Was that something that you had always kind of known, always understood of yourself and just kind of suppressed? I mean, growing up Baptist, that's not the the greatest yeah. way to kind of like explore that and understand that. Um, yeah. Is, is that, is that fair to say that you hadn't kind of overly kind of looked at that in that context? Right. I totally wish I had grown up knowing it. My life would be so different right now. And sometimes mm. I do fantasize about it, but I can't go there too much. Cause I think there's a little grief there. Uh, so I did not realize I was queer until um, in my thirties, early thirties. Wow. And it wasn't until several years into my marriage to a cishet man. So my whole life, I thought it was straight, super into men. And then once like this light bulb went off, I like looked back at my life and I was like, Oh my word, there's clues every step away from early elementary, like little, little kid where I knew I was like into women, into uh, different genders beyond just the binary male and female. And yet, because I didn't have the vocabulary for it, I didn't have the conversation around it. I just had, I had no idea what to do with it. So I think I just felt it and moved on. 
and didn't sure. do much with it, but it was always there. And I felt like it was a late coming home to myself. And really it's been the past four years. Cause I just realized it in 2016, the right. last four years has just been one long continuous journey home to myself. And I've never felt more embodied and more expressed as my truest authentic self. But there is a little grief there of the experiences and life I could have had, had I yeah. known my queerness earlier on. Sure. I mean, it's such a complex topic because of course, I mean, presuming your age to be around 30s, I don't know your age, but, um, you know, assuming you're probably around the same age as me, I'm, I'm th- I don't know what age I'm, 35, turning 36 soon. Okay. Um, so, yeah. you know, we, we grew up kind of in that window where sexuality and gender was really just emerging as a conversation and something that people were really looking at exploring and, and, and kind of trying to unpack as a socially constructed concept. Um, and, I mean, even if we were outside the church, you, you you go back and you read the literature from the late 80s, early 90s, and you go, gosh, these guys were figuring it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Some of the most um, important literature in, in regarding gender. Um, you can go back and read the first editions, and you're like, whoa, this reads different than the third and fourth edition. And it's because so much has changed and so much has been um, discovered. And that's like outside of a very rigid black and white church system that's in a free environment to try and figure this out and people didn't really understand you know and um and so i can't even imagine what it's like you know that would have been hard for any kid to try and come to terms with and figure out in any context outside of church but you put yourself in a baptist church in a christian family whatever like i don't even know where you begin like i mean yeah <laughs> right yeah and Absolutely i think wild. i think Yes. And I think part of the problem is we just don't believe people. Like, I feel Mm. like this conversation, like when they were just figuring out in the eighties and nineties could have been done way earlier. If we would have just believed people when they said, I identify as this, I'm attracted to people like this, but it went so against the heteronormative narrative that it was like society and religion did anything could to like squelch that, even punish it and criminal criminalize it Mm. versus saying, huh, isn't that interesting? There's more and more people speaking up about this, what can we learn from them? But instead we've tried to like keep people to the margins. And so like, that's, that's how powerful the heteronormative narrative is, is that you can complete, you can convince completely queer people to think they're straight. Like that blows my mind. And I'm so not okay with that. And this is why I ended up coming out publicly, even though I look straight, I pass straight. I have a lot of privilege because that, because I don't want anyone to ever feel alone in their journey. Cause I felt absolutely terrifyingly alone when I realized I was queer married to a straight man and I didn't know any other couple like that now I'm in a Facebook group where there's literally 300 of us queer women partnered with cishet men so now it's the norm and I'm just like there's so many of us out there but but only because we're now just coming out with our stories right and finding each other and I come out also because I want to push back on this narrative that we just assume people's orientation or identity when we're around them and when I came out, I was like, hey, I'm I'm queer and I'm your best friend. I'm your sister. I'm your daughter. I'm your boss. I'm your employee. Like, we're all around you. And so give us the benefit of the doubt and, like, believe us when we tell you who we are. Yeah. And don't try to put the heteronarrative hetero on us because society and religion has already done too good of a job of that. Yeah, big time. Big time. And it's so fascinating. I, I did a lot of study into... Um, this context, I, I created some resources helping Christians look at how they can look at these topics in different ways, trying to maybe 
just soften their their hard stance and maybe see if we can start tiptoeing into some healthier uh, beliefs mm-hmm. and and some of the stuff i studied was you know all the um what was it called the exodus you know the the um at the ex-gay conversion all that different stuff and i was looking at the data that they had on hand after they kind of came out and said hey so we're shutting down because after like 30 years we've not really had any success i think their success was less than 0.01 percent um, but but then they were like, and looking at the data, as we understand it as an organization, we're starting to understand that sexuality is a bit more of a spectrum. And what we're realizing is that while me, we maybe had some quote unquote success in helping people like become more open to being attracted to someone of an opposite sex, we didn't cure them from their same sex. You know, it, it, we maybe like found some people that basically had bi or pansexuality tendencies and encourage them to explore a slightly different side of it and 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 there is that element where suddenly you have people that are bisexual have an out in church in christianity right maybe not their favorite by any means not their their best choice not their best life but they go i can get by here without getting sent to a conversion therapy camp for four years as a teenager or whatever you know um but it's 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 a brutal thing one one of the churches i used to be involved with still does conversion therapy completely illegal it's in california as well which i'm like oh my god like how do you get away with but it's not conversion therapy obviously um and it's it's just crazy how much this is still like hammered by by christians constantly pushing against this kind of um this stuff yeah I'm so glad you brought this point up, Phil, because every time I see a book or an article coming out saying, you know, she or he was gay and now they're straight, I'm like, or are you just bi? Like, sure. like I just always want to bring up that point because everyone's like, yeah. And I'm like, no, I've been there. Like, I'm extremely bi or pansexual. And like, you absolutely can, if you must to survive, choose a gender that is conforming to pass and it feels safe and all that. And it's just like, is that part of the conversation I just never see brought up because mm. we're just so focused on the result. So just thank you for picking that up yeah. and just shedding some light on that. Cause it's a very real experience for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I joke about it with my wife. Like, so I remember, are you familiar with Stephen Fry? He's a big comedian in the UK. Yes. Very, very famous guy here. Mm-hmm. I don't know how famous he's become in America. Um, but he talks about, and he is gay. You know, there, there's, you know, like of, all the gay there is, he is gay. You know, he, he is very clear, like, hi, I am here and I am gay. Um, and what's funny is he talks about it once and he says there are two women in his life that he met. And he's like, I was attracted to them. I, I could have loved them and spent my life with them. Um, and uh, and he talks about that as he goes, like, this is, the, the whole thing is a spectrum, regardless of how much you're on one side or the other. He says, absolutely, there's 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 a whole myriad of complications and, and, and components here to this. Um, and I think about that and I'm like, yeah, I found certain guys attractive before. I've never found them attractive to the point where I'd want to sleep with them. So I'm pretty sure my, on the spectrum, I'm not very far along <laughs> anyway, I'm probably pretty strong <laughs> on the female side. Um, but like, I think we just don't look at these things honestly, but you ask a Christian guy, Hey, have you ever found a guy attractive? Um, you know, have you ever looked at Jude Law's like chiseled jaw and just like, dear Lord God's like nuzzle me to bed and read me a bedtime story dude um you know like i guarantee some guys have watched the holiday and thought yes jude yes um but they're not going to say that you know that you're not going to hear that from a, a good evangelical christian guy um and i, I one, one thing i think is quite interesting is i think christian women would probably be more open 
to admitting. I think there's a, a very um, acceptability to say, oh, I, f- I find that woman attractive. Um, probably a lot more stigma depending on how you finish that sentence, you know, um, and I'd like to do this to her or whatever. We'd probably like, wait, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating component that like, I do think the church is just, I think it's, it's a big education component, but they just are, it's, it's black and whites, isn't it? It's, it's a gay, not gay, um, you know, right, wrong, in, out. That's how the church operates. It's very um, fundamental in yeah. how it approaches these things. And so something like yeah. pansexual, they're just going to scratch their head for a while if you say something like that, right? They're going to have to certainly open a few books yeah. and explore for a while. <laughs> and, and I love that. Yeah. I love doing that to them. I want them and people in general to scratch their head. Like, and that's part of why when people ask or I, I share my identity, I say I'm either queer or I say pansexual, specifically to have them lean in and say, tell me more. What does that mean for you? Mm. Because if I said I was gay, which I'm not, but I said I was gay or even bisexual, people have a pretty quick assumption of what that means. And so it becomes an end point versus for me, it's a beginning point. And so I want you to lean in. I want you to have a conversation. And I always tell people queer and pan means different for every person. So ask that person, Mm -hmm. what does that mean for you? Because we're so quick to assume. So when people do scratch their heads, I'm like, yay, I'm doing my job. I'm having them like question their beliefs and like learn something new by leaning into a real person in real time and hopefully Mm. believe what they're saying. And that's one of the gifts I feel like I bring to the world. I want you to scratch your head. Yeah. Well, well, please elaborate. What does that mean to you that that you identify as pansexual? Like, because I love to know myself and I'm sure people listening in are like, okay, because there are going to be people, maybe not too many actually listening to this, but certainly a good bunch going, wait, so what does that mean? Yes. Good question. So when I first came out, I didn't know what I was. I just knew I wasn't fully straight and I knew I wasn't gay. So I knew it was somewhere on that spectrum and bisexual never really felt fully right. So I would only call myself queer because it's kind of an umbrella term for all Mm. LGBTQ identities and orientations. So it's kind of like trying to figure it out. And then I remember one night I heard the term pansexual and something in me resonated. And even though I didn't even know what it meant and I like Googled it right away and I was like, oh my God, that's me. And so here, and this is, I think this was in 2017, I first heard that term and I'm like, this must be a new term. And so when I Googled it, it's been around since 1917. And I was like, what? It just shows how like removed we are from our own education, our own terms. So it's been around for over a hundred years. And for me, the reason why I love pansexual so much is I'm the kind of person who loves humans. I love your soul. I love your energy. I love what you think about, what you're passionate about. Whatever package that comes in, that is not as important to me because I'm just going to love whoever and whatever you bring to the table. And so for me, pan is way more open and Mm. honors that part of me that I'm not picking you based on your genitals, whether it's like femme identifying genitals or very masculine. And so for bisexual, the, the main problem I have with it is people think, oh, you're really into masculine men or feminine women. And it completely eliminates transgender people, agender people, um, multi-gender people. And I'm attracted to all of those. So mm. Pan just kind of opens it up to like, oh, you're not just into one or the other. You're into all kinds. With that said, just like everyone, everyone else, I have preferences, right? So my like ideal person I'd love to date is like an androgynous woman. I really am attracted to masculine energy. So whether mm. you're a man with masculine energy or a more feminine being with masculine energy, that's my thing. 
Um, but my, my queer friends joke that I'm into gender benders, which means I'm into men who can be more femme and I'm into women who can be more masculine. I love mm. playing of the roles and energy and identities. And so pan just fits that better than if I typically say I'm bi. Sure. So that's what it means for me. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. And, and that's a lot to navigate in, in a, like, again, like we talked about the church, understanding sexuality, understanding gender. God, church doesn't, <laughs> un- church to, to the church, the word sex and gender are the same thing. And the conversation ends there and we're done. You know, like mm-hmm. you could go look, do we have a penis? Do we have, you know, whatever else, you know, no, no, penis, vagina, we're done. We're like, that's it. Let's have a look at these and probably poor use of a gender norm. But um, it's just, mm-hmm. it's such a black and white conversation in the church. So to be figuring that out on the fly, because so when did you, you discovered this 2016 where you, you were still pastoring at this point? You were still in the church? I was still in the church, keeping it quiet. Cause I knew if I came out with it, I would probably lose it all. And I was oh. really afraid to lose it all. So how did you come about like this discovery within this? Cause you're living in this relative bubble, right? Mm-hmm. How did that Actually, come about where you're like, Oh, this is a good question because now actually I need to give credit to my mega church for helping me realize my queerness. This is fantastic. So when I joined this mega church and this was, this was the first church that taught me when it came to like homosexuality, the LGBTQ community, they said, go listen to the other side. Mm. And I was never encouraged to do that because we always had the right side. We were on the right side. Everyone else was wrong. So I did. I started reading books by um, LGBTQ authors. I started following queer theologians. And when I read their work and followed them and engaged with them, I took a queer theology course online in 2013. And I, it completely blew apart any arguments I had been taught my whole life. And I was already predis- predisposed to be an ally because even though the church taught me that homosexuality is wrong and bad and sinful and pe- th- those people are lost, some of my best friends in high school were queer people. And I remember thinking they are more amazing than most of my Christian friends. Like this, this, mm. this doesn't match up. So even though I was taught homophobic theology, my reality was I was very affirming and accepting and loving of all humans. So then when I started studying the queer side of theology, it just confirmed my own internal knowing there's nothing wrong with them. It's mm. a okay. It's perfectly natural. And we have so much to learn from them. So I went from, being in a, like an internal ally to very external and explicit and bold. Cause I was so passionate about the church stop harming LGBTQ people. And in fact, employing, hiring, putting LGBTQ people in leadership in pastoral positions and kind of what it sounds like you've done. I was trying to stay within the church to inch it forward, to help them get to an affirming mm-hmm. place. And I did everything I could to help, move this monster of a church on my little back to a place where I felt like we were meant to be, um, to no avail. But through that, I started going to more LGBTQ events, theaters, shows. And so I was being exposed to more and more queer people. And I just had this like magnetic attraction to them. And I was just thinking, Mm. I'm straight. I just love people. I'm just a people person. And then I was spent enough time around them that it finally like, the coin went in the slot and I was like, oh, this isn't just like, I love people attraction. This is like, I'm intensely magnetically attracted romantically. And I mm. could totally see myself being with them. <clears throat> and that's when I was like, oh my word. And my entire 
self-perception of who I am and what I'm, who I'm attracted to like blew apart. And it was absolutely terrifying and felt really good to finally be able to name something that was always there. Yeah. That's a huge thing though, because like this is an existential kind of uh, crisis on a massive level, even more so. I mean, this is is a huge thing for a lot of people, but for someone from a conservative Christian background, you've got your family accepting you, your friends accepting you, your community isolating you, your job, you know, like all these different components. And then you've got as well, what does this mean for my marriage? What will this do for my kids? Because you've got kids as well, right? I've seen kids on your Instagram. I hope they're yours and not just kidnapped or something. But, <laughs> yeah, um, three of them. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so this is going to have knock, 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 you know, effects. Um, and so it's a huge thing to be navigating. Like what was the kind of um, timeline for you of, okay, I've had that like realization like, oh, whoa, these aren't just, you know, um, great people. These are my people to, okay. And and, and then trying to go, oh, maybe I can kind of maybe baby steps. Maybe we can move and help this ship steer a little bit more uh, towards that direction. I I did that for close to a decade and um, I'm with you. I've probably helped individuals, many individuals, but as far as changing the system, no. It's, it's not it's not gonna happen <laughs> um, no. maybe i don't know uh, certain systems maybe um what was what was that process in between you know that initial moment through to kind of like okay we're done i need to come out as being myself being fully authentic you know being able to be open about where i'm at what's going on probably letting a lot of things in the process die you know there's a definite death and grieving and and all sorts of stuff that goes in there like how did you navigate that process and like how how long did that get drawn out for was that an extensive period for you yes that's a great question phil and i appreciate your like you obviously a lot of experience and knowledge in this area because i think when people on the outside heard my story and even to this day hear my story they just think like oh she threw it all away she's so heartless she doesn't think (laughs) anything through but it's exactly that. It's like, I have thought everything through to the nth degree because it cost me, I knew it was going to cost me so yeah. much, right? My church, my family, my friends, my possibly my marriage, my children, every facet of my life was going to be permanently affected if I decided to own my identity and come out publicly with it. Yeah. And so I did a lot of thinking, a lot of crying, a lot of praying, uh, a lot of strategizing in order to try to make this transition possible smooth and life-giving. Um, but if anyone who decides to come out about anything, their, their gender, their orientation, their change in their faith, anything, I always want to tell people, give them the benefit of the doubt that they have thought the most about it more yeah. than you ever will in your lifetime, because you're the one who's not doing it. Yeah. Right. They put so, the skin in the game here. Yes. And so that happened to me. Like there was about a week there when I realized my queerness in 2016, where I literally thought, take it to the grave, take it to the grave, you <laughs> look straight, you pass straight, no one needs to know. And I just like, that's so and that, funny. Like, Why is it funny? Like, I don't know. There's just a thing of like, nope, too much cost. All right, chin up, Nicole. <laughs> let's do this. We can do this. It's mild misery, but it's easier than total misery. Let's just keep going. Like, and I, I, I laugh because I've been there. Everyone I know has been there. They've had that moment of thought of like, no, yeah, I'll just, uh, this isn't too bad. I can just, I can, I can chin up and just keep going. Oh my oh, God. It's, it's like so sad, isn't it? Cause it's like, you Sorry, I don't mean to laugh like, at your intense trauma. No, I trauma. love it. I love it. <laughs> 
I love it. Cause you're right. Everyone can relate to that. Like, do I just want to be miserable the rest of my life or like, which misery are you going to choose? Yeah. And so when I had that thought of like, take it to the grave, like part of my soul died because I'm such an authentic soul. And even as like, even if I stayed in my marriage and like, we kept the, the appearance and the structure of everything as is, there would be something in me that would have died because I, mm. I'm lying. And I just can't do that as Nicole. And that's just for me. That is not for all queer people. Coming out is every single person's own right and decision in yeah. their own time. And so, but the one person I knew I could tell and who would absolutely support me was my husband. He's mm. just that kind of soul. So I had zero fear telling him. And when I did tell him one night, his response was, that's awesome. That's, I think that's perfectly normal and healthy. And I'm so happy for you. Wow. And I just wept because I, I just needed that. I just needed someone outside of me to like reflect back to me, my own inherent goodness. And he held me and he loved me and he just fiercely supported me. Like whatever you want, I'm, I'm here to back you up. Wow. And so for the next year, I just slowly came out to my very small inner circle, which was really, really hard because I knew I was going to lose some friendships in the process and family members. And it was about a year after that, that like I'd come out to enough close people that I felt like I had enough people to have my back to come out publicly. Mm. And at this time I was in a queer, uh, not a queer, it was a seminary with large queer population. It was the first religious institution I've ever ever been a part of that was queer affirming and most of the staff and professors uh, and students were LGBTQ. It was an incredibly wow. healing space. So being in a space where that was normalized gave me the courage that this can exist in places outside of here. Yeah. And so I decided to come out publicly. They all had my back. They cheered me on. I felt sick to my stomach. And then once it's out there, then it became an even longer journey of answering people's questions, deciding not to answer people's questions, mm -hmm. um, navigating really hard conversations with friends, family, complete strangers. And, and because when you do come out, there's a lot of pressure to have it all figured out. Well, what's this mean for your marriage? What's this mean for your, your children? What's it? And it's like, I don't know. All I do know is this thing about me and I have the desire and the need to share it. I need space now to figure it out. And there's a lot of pressure to pretend like, you know what's going to happen. And if you go back to looking at my coming out YouTube series, I even said, oh, my husband and I, we're, we're never going to get divorced. We're totally staying <laughs> together. And fast forward three years and we're divorced. I did not see that coming. So we, we try so hard to just assume we know exactly how it's going to go down and we have it all figured out. But I think what a lot of us need as all humans, not just LGBTQ people, is space to continually evolve and figure out what is best and right and true mm. for you. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. That's, it's amazing that you were able to find a community and people around you to do this alongside. I think, I mean, whatever it is, I mean, uh, something is so integral as something like sexuality or faith when you're coming out with something that is such a part of who you are and, and, and who you have been your whole life. Um, and you're coming out into groups that are radically different. Um, it, it makes the, uh, the world of difference already knowing, oh, if this shit goes down and this goes to total hell, I've got 20 people over there that will hug me. Or I've got one person that will send me a text going, don't worry, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Um, those groups, people, was it mostly from your kind of like your, the seminary you're a part of now? Or, or were there people within this church community that you were a part of that 
were kind of like, oh, yeah, that's okay, or did the work to kind of understand where you were coming from? What was the general response from like your close kind of Christian um, friends? Yeah, good question. No, and you're, you're right in the sense like it is really important, I think, for every person to have one person who has your back and is going to support yeah. you, especially when you're going through a major life transition, whatever that looks like. And I was incredibly fortunate to have the seminary, um, a group of online friends, and just a couple people from my Christian community mm-hmm. that believed me, and not just believed me, but actively supported me. I told some of my close Christian friends, I was like, Ooh, okay, we love you. But, you know, and I, I didn't want but in there. I wanted them to be like, Nicole, we are for you all the way. So that yeah. took my huge Christian community to really, really small few people and I had just to decide that was enough and what I tell like some of my one-on-one coaching clients is sometimes you pay to have people in your corner so like I hired a life coach I joined a mastermind I needed people in person and online who loved me for me and would have my back no matter what and and I was a little strategic about it when I came out publicly in October of 2017 right before I did I messaged my people and I said hey today's the day I'm posting my video at 10 a.m. Please come just flood my social media accounts with love. Cause I made a video yeah. and I posted on YouTube into all my social media because I wanted to set the tone from the get go that there's only love and support available for Nicole. So if you're a troll or a hater, hopefully that scares you off. So I told them that I posted it and then I like went to bed. I felt so sick to myself about what I just Throw did. But I also knew. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, I'm never going back on there again. Here I am world and goodbye. Um, <laughs> but I knew they had my back. So whenever I would ever, lo- whenever I would log on, I know that I would find a lot of love and support and they did an amazing job doing that. That's awesome. Wow. Gosh, that's amazing. And how had you navigated your role within the church? Was that something that, you know, I know for me when I was becoming more and more public about where I was, I, I always kind of was like, anything I taught, anything I did, I was probably teaching like maybe about four or five years behind where I was. And I'd be like, okay, if I just teach like maybe like six months ahead of where you are, if you're following the same similar journey, but like five years behind, you know, maybe this might go okay. Um, But at a certain point I was like, okay, if I'm just going to come out and go, Hey guys, this is what I believe. I'm like overnight going, okay, let's fast forward six years, go. Um, People aren't going to freak out. And, And so I kind of slowly transitioned. I spoke to the church that I was in leadership with and saying, hey, you guys know where I'm at and you kind of tolerate me as long as I don't say anything, but I'm going to start saying stuff. And so I'm going to take a step out of leadership for your benefit. Like, I just want you to feel as safe as possible. I can make public statements for you to say, hey, this is not what my church believe or, or whatever. Like, what do you need from me? Um how did you process mentally like okay i'm a part of this church i'm on leadership they're probably not gonna like this if 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 some do most won't um so how how am i gonna go about that how do i navigate that um mm-hmm. as best i can like what was your thought process in dealing with the i mean your your role that you've got a very uh, important role there that people are looking to you and um yeah there's a lot going on there because people, Christians, yeah, it, Christian leaders are scared of a regular Christian in the church being gay. 
But like when it's one of those people up on stage that we're giving like a, an endorsement or, you know, all these kind of languages we use like, oh, but you're like representing the church or, you know, as opposed to other people that go to church who don't represent the church, apparently. Um, I don't know. I know. It's so <laughs> bizarre and messed up and not okay. And I, it was really interesting once I became part of like the leadership team, seeing things from behind the scenes and seeing how very strategic, if not calculated, everything was. And I just it just caused me more and more unrest in my soul. Cause I'm like, this isn't authentic. This isn't genuine. This is strategy to sell a brand, a persona to get more people in here. But at the end of the day, like you're not actually helping and loving people who really need it. Like it was really conflicting place to be. And especially as a closeted queer where I'm trying to like insert into my sermons about LGBTQ people being a gift, being a leader, but also being told by my, uh, male pastors and higher power, like, oh, make sure you put that little statement in the middle of your sermon. So most people will miss it because we don't want them to think we're affirming. Like this, the calculating thoughts behind it all was just like, it just snuffed out my like little tender heart of like, this isn't how we're supposed to be like, and especially in a church that pride prides itself on differing opinions. Like if you, if you believe that, then like this needs to be an area where we should be able to, I should say something that's different from you um, because this is my opinion. Right. Yeah. But again, like you said, when you're in on the stage, you kind of represent the church and they very much control the image that is portrayed to their people and to people mm. outside the church. And so I was always trying to like figure out ways to weave in my message that was true and authentic to my soul, but also not like piss off my male pastors too much. And it was just like this dance that was exhausting because I was mm. either not enough or too much and like always getting critiqued for it. And I realized like, I'm not moving anything forward here. Just my tender heart is just being ruined Destroyed. every every time. Yeah. And so finally, like someone asked me, did you leave the church or did the church kick you out? And I was like, I think it's kind of <laughs> mutual releasing of each other. Like yeah. the longer I was there, the more broken my heart was coming. So I was kind of like naturally being pushed out and like they were kind of getting tired of me. So I think it was like the best gift we gave each other. Just kind of like, yeah. let's just walk away and pretend this didn't happen. Um, but it, it was really, really hard yeah. when I was there the last year trying to pretend I wasn't queer and, and yet trying to help move the church forward. Yeah. Wow. And, and what did this do for, I mean, a lot of people that go through these radical shifts of faith revolving around one kind of major kind of theological component. So for you, it was um, this component of LGBTQ, um, affirming, non-affirming, something in the middle, like the LGBT friendly, which is we, we're totally affirming a few unless you want to be a leader or be, bring your boyfriend to church or whatever, right? <laughs> like it's like, oh, now we're not so affirming. Like that weird middle ground that is just not affirming. Um and all the churches want to be that middle ground because they think that's somehow the best. Um, but, you know, a lot of people end up going through these radical shifts of faith revolving around one theological component. But generally speaking, their their journey of trying to incorporate that into their faith. So maybe you're reading a crap ton of books about how can I be gay or, you know, pansexual or, you know, trans and that still be okay. And you start reading these books and you go, yeah, okay, I can see how if actually I approach the Bible differently, if I incorporate some contextual history or whatever, but then you start going, huh, what if I did that with some other stuff? And you find suddenly other parts of your faith start kind of like, getting fucked up whatever that looks like i don't know um was was that a component for you in, the, in this season because you're you, like you said right people that are going through this 
are doing some hard work here. People don't go... They're, they're generally speaking doing much harder theological work in this area than their pastors have done, generally yeah. speaking. Very few pastors have read as many uh, books on um, homosexuality, sexuality, gender, whatever, as someone that is gay, bi, trans, you know, queer, whatever it might look like. Um, and that does tend to be a bit of a catalyst for a lot of people in starting to explore other theological components. Were there things that were starting to shift and change for you around other topics in that season as well? Yeah, it's a fantastic question, Phil. Yeah, I think anytime we have been convinced to believe something our entire life and then we realize it's not true, like me thinking I'm straight and realize I'm not straight at all, it does cause you to question like, what else in my life have I totally believed in that could I could be absolutely wrong on. And mm. it's terrifying and thrilling, two sides of the same coin, because once I realized my truth about my queerness, I felt liberated. I felt embodied. I felt empowered. I felt excited in ways I never felt about my straightness. And so it made me like kind of eager to see where else am I missing the mark and not actually living my truth and lining up my belief. And that's the beauty of like, when you start doing any kind of reading or research on any topic, it's kind of a rabbit trail. They recommend mm -hmm. this book or this resource or this author, or this conference. And so I just, my whole horizons began to open up and expand. And I just became a lot more loose with my beliefs, things that I was taught mm. to hold on so dearly, I found were actually constricting this one area of my life. And so in case they're constricting other areas of my life, I'm just going to open it up. And what happened that process is I went from spending my whole life checking my beliefs according to everyone else outside of me. What does my pastor think? What do my parents think? What does this church I'm a part of think? Like, and I would try to fit that and I flipped it. I was like, okay, what do I think? What do I feel? What do I believe? And is there a space out there where that's already existing or am I completely off the rocker here? Am I mm. crazy? And so now, even with my children, when they're like, mom, is Santa real? And I'm like, well, when I was a little girl, I used to think Santa was real, but now I don't think he is. What do you think? Oh, I totally think he's real. Okay, cool. So I, I'm already going to have them turn inward and like check sure. in with their intuition and their inner knowing so that that can be their guiding compass as they navigate all these beliefs and systems and structures that are out here. But because if you lose sight of this, you're just going to be tossed about by everyone's opinion on who you should be, what you should do, who you should love, all the things. So now, I mean, I'm in a completely different place theologically and spiritually than I was sure. even just a couple of years ago, but it all started when I started turning inward to my intuition, to what I believe is my connection to God and less to the external noise of other people's opinions and beliefs and expectations. And that's probably been one of the most radical and most healing things I've ever done. Yeah, absolutely. I can well imagine it. I can well imagine mm -hmm. that. That's beautiful. It's really, I love that as well with, with kids. And, and I mean, establishing that early on can be such a huge thing. And it's literally the exact opposite way that um, yeah. most religions operate. You know, most yes. certainly Christianity does not operate that way nine times out of 10. Um, yeah. It is very much a, a trickle down of belief, you know, it comes from God, then it goes through a Bible, it goes through a pastor or whatever, and it goes through the teaching team and eventually you go to church on a Thursday and some woman tells you what you're supposed to believe and you know. Um, yes, it's all very systematic. And to be able to start from within rather than out with, I mean, it's it's a safeguard. And of course we can still be completely, you know, 
ludicrous in our beliefs, right? Your kids still believe in Sansa. You know, maybe he's right. Maybe, you know, maybe we're all wrong. Right. Um, but um, you, you could still, you know, be, be deceived. I mean, with people, Christians would go, well, you know, Nicole, you're just opening yourself up to be deceived. You can't trust the heart is wicked, you know, before, uh, above all things and whatever. Never mind the other passages say that, you know, you should trust your heart. So <laughs> who knows? Um, but you know, did you did you kind of wrestle with those components? Because I know for a lot of people that I have worked with, I I, I didn't really go through this. I, I'm a weirdo. I just think I'm like just a bit of an anomaly. Because most people I talk to, this is not their case, but for me it was. Mm-hmm. Um, for most people I talk to, there's an element of like, look, I've had it hammered into me my whole life. You can't trust your gut. Don't trust yourself. Don't listen to the world is evil. They'll lead you astray. You know, I mean, you might, yeah, maybe you're, you know, queer, but queer people can't be trusted. They're not Christians. So you need to like take a step back and just find someone under authority and just, you know, submit to them and all these kind of mindsets as we start coming out of them and we go, I don't believe that. That's just a bunch of bullshit. But on some level, I still believe it. And I've got this nagging voice bugging me the whole time going, Phil, dude, you're going off the deep end. Oh, what if you're wrong? Maybe you're going to go to hell, you know, whatever it is. Um, did, how did you navigate kind of that component of coming out, but still on some level having that nagging inner voice that probably yeah. still speaks very Christian? Um, yes. Fantastic question. It's It was a really intense struggle because, because precisely as you said, I've been taught my entire life, the one thing you cannot trust is yourself. You need a middleman, Nicole. You need a pastor. You need Jesus. You need you need something because you in and of yourself are not trustworthy. You are mm. sinful. You are wicked. You're utterly deceitful. And so it was absolutely terrifying to like push away from outside voices and the middlemen and like start listening to myself thinking I was being rebellious and being dumb, being led astray. So part of how I navigated that was I actually hired a life coach. Right. I wanted to like, how, how do you live your best life when like you've been told your whole life who to be and what to think, but Mm. it's not actually jiving with your inner truth. And like, who is right? Are they right? Am I right? Are we both completely wrong? And, and so I started spending more time with and hiring people who lived life based on their intuition. So if if I can see people following their intuition, living happy, healthy, successful, thriving lives, to me, the evidence would speak for itself because I was at a point in my life where I had done the whole listen to everyone but yourself. And I was absolutely miserable. Like Mm -hmm. I had been lied to about who my, who I thought I was in my identity and orientation. My voice was constantly overlooked. I always felt like nauseous. I had really bad anxiety and depression. And now that I am where I am, the main reason for all of that is because I had been cut off from my own voice. I had been cut off from my own knowing. And I was just like this inner turmoil of just trying to please everyone at cost to myself. And so when I started spending more time with people who lived life based on their intuition and how beautiful their life was and how their outsides matched their insides and their insides matched their outsides. And there's this complete unification. There was no fragmentation. Mm. There was no cognitive dissonance. They were who they were inside out. And I was just like, I can't even imagine how beautiful it must be and feel and live to have a life like that. And so seeing them go first and cultivate a life based on their inner knowing gave me the courage, keep going. There might be something here. Yeah. Now that I'm here where my entire life is based on my intuition, on my heart's desires, and I'm the happiest, healthiest, wealthiest I've ever been, which is enough proof for me. Um, I now see that old way of being as a power play 
If you want to keep people in power and certain people out of power, always convince the people who don't have power that the one thing they can't trust themselves. If you can convince them to betray their truth and betray their voice, they will not have the power to rise up. And we Mm. get to stay comfy in our powerful positions. But once people like me down here find my voice, find our truth, and start building life on that, it completely flips the power structure. And now you no longer need them to connect you to God or to give you peace or whatever. And it that's terrifying to them. But it's the exact thing that the world needs is flipping toxic yeah. leadership and ta- toxic power structures on their head and giving power to everyone and letting mm. everyone have the right to be the leader in their own life and realizing a middleman was never required. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. I love it. I think that's one of the, the fears I've come across of a lot of pastors. And I think a lot of the reasons some pastors have done some really stupid things during the pandemic to try and keep their churches functioning as is, um, is a bit of that fear that, um, you know, you look at the, um, the Pope blessing, um, you know, you finding confession and and redemption of those sins between you and God in your own homes. And he's like, look, I know you're panicking about you can't go to confession, but you can do that at home. It's fine. God's still going to forgive you. And that undermines a lot of what the Catholic Church is kind of built on. Now, he did say, you know, once pandemic's over, please come on back in and do it with a priest. And I can also say that I might find that very helpful and, 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 a, and a helpful dynamic as well in dealing with some stuff I'm struggling with and so got some shame. There's something about being vulnerable with another human with some shame that releases you from that in a way that maybe it doesn't on your own. I, I understand that that could be a helpful dynamic, but I think a lot of pastors are realizing, huh, so we're having to tell people, don't worry, the church isn't in the building. Don't worry, you can worship God just as much listening to a CD as our band with a smoke machine. Don't worry, me speaking on Zoom or you listening to Joel Osteen on a podcast is just as good as me being in person in a church. Like, I'm kind of doing myself out of a job because if they really believe that, they might not come back, right? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm teaching them how to have their own faith journey still within maybe some of the same structures but it's their own you know they can manage it and, and navigate it themselves and, and i think that is the, the the crux of why so many pastors have panicked in this season um is because they realize god i'm a middleman and people are realizing they don't need the middleman in this season mm-hmm. or they, they can't have the middleman anyway mm-hmm. um it's so fascinating that dynamic really really that's interesting like exactly what we need <laughs> and not yeah, saying completely it's, it's great dis- Right. To disband the church. One thing I do miss, because I left the church three years ago and I've not gone back, is I miss the community where Mm -hmm. there's a group of people who know who you are. They check in on your babies. They throw you baby showers. They help you when you move. Like there is a real element of community I miss. Um, And I miss the choir. I miss singing. I love singing as a group and I don't get to do that anymore. Um, But I do love the idea of eliminating the middleman. And I feel like this is part of why I love being a life coach so much is, mm. and I tell my clients this all the time and they love it and, and my public pages where I'm like, you don't need a life coach to, to say and assume you need a life coach is so arrogant because like, oh, you can't get where you're meant to be without me. Like that's such bullshit. Oh, sorry. I don't know. You're fine. Cuss away. Okay, no, no. good. That's such bullshit because like that same belief was taught to me in the church. You can't get closer to God unless you have this middleman doing something on your behalf. And so like, you're so brilliant and so connected to the divine, you're going to get there no matter what. 
all working with a life coach does can expedite the process. I can just help you get there a little faster, especially if you work with someone who's already where you want to be. Right. And so I love that. I get like a lot of my work as a life coach is helping walk people home to themselves and eliminating any middleman. Cause I'm not even the middleman. Cause I keep pointing them back to their truth. I keep pointing them back to their power. And it's so healing for everyone I work with. Cause we've all to some degree have been taught to be powerless or to yeah. ha- not have much of a voice, not take up space, not ruffle feathers. And to have someone by your side who says, uh, 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 what do you want to do? What is your intuition saying? Yeah. Now go do that thing. And I've got you. It's so healing and empowering. So I feel like what I've learned in the church and now what I've taken to my business is actually helping individuals heal and rise up, which my goal is to create a movement, this collective movement of people stepping into their power, rising up and deciding to live life on their terms without the middleman there. And it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things I've done very, very limited training in coaching and I never really did it. Um, particularly I, I did some for about six months. Um, but in my experience, it is, it's very much the person coming to you as a coach is the boss. You're just asking insightful questions. You're, you know, encouraging them that they know the best and to, to, to dig deep and to come up to those conclusions. You know, you're, you're not the person making the decisions here. You're not telling them this is what you should do, or this is what you should believe, or that's wrong, or that's right. Um, again, I might be completely wrong in that, but from my, the, the, the subset of training that I had, that was very much the focus. It was like, look, this is as much hands off on your part as possible. You're trying to make this person in the room realize oh my gosh, the person with the best solutions to my life is probably me because I know everything anyway about my life. This person I'm coming to doesn't know anything about me a lot of the time. Um, and, and it's a beautiful way to approach life. And it's the exact opposite way that a lot of people in church leadership operate. They, they do act like, oh, I know everything that's best for you. I know you um, somehow. I mean, God knows, especially you go to something like a mega church as well. A pastor has no idea who you are most of the time, right? Um, it's, it's a totally bizarre component. I, I think you're right, though, with the church in that it, there's a lot of great things about church. And I think the question of the hour, as so many people are leaving the church, I, I quote a statistic all the time, but 2,700 people every day leave church forever in America. 2,700 every day forever, never to go back to a church. That is such a high number. Um, and it's the fastest growing spiritual movement um, in America. And so there's something going on here. And what's interesting is the number one thing that they claim they want is community. But it's really hard for people that don't go to church to find people that don't go to church in a sense. Um, because you stop being a Baptist and you go to a non-denominational. Well, I'll just go try some non-denominations. And then you go, actually, no, I quite like to try a Lutheran. And so you go, oh, I'll go try the Lutheran. But when you go, I'm done with this thing called church. Where do I go to find people that are done with this thing called church? Um, and a lot of people, they growing up in church, haven't learned how to make friends, haven't learned. I mean, that was kind of almost managed for you within the church, right? It just was, you go to a church and it's like, oh, here's a new person. She's called Nicole. Everyone be friends with her. And everyone's like, great, we'll be friends with her. And you're like, that was easy. Um, that's <laughs> not the experience when you step out, generally speaking, right? You have to then be quite intentional about I need to build a community for myself. Um, how did you navigate that when you came out of <clears throat> church? How did you go about like building something of a community for yourself? Yes. Great question. A couple things. When I left the church, I was actually just starting seminary and I felt like that yeah, was the right, net sorry. that caught me. Um, and I'm so glad how that worked out. I didn't like strategize that at all. It's kind of how it unfolded. 
But even outside of that, I hired a life coach because hiring life coaches, yeah, someone who can like hold space for you and ask really good questions and point you back to yourself. But also for me, having life coach or being a life coach is giving or having access to someone who has what you want, who shows you what's possible. So I hired my first life coach and I, and my life coach had to have three qualifications. They had to be LGBTQ because I want to see an LGBTQ person who's happy and thriving. They had to have gone from broke to rich because I was so tired of being broke and the whole church theology of like, you know, somehow poverty is a little more holy or struggle and sacrifice is good. And I was Mm. so tired of it. Except for the pastor. Um, Right, right, exactly. Um, So they had to be queer. They had to have gone broke from rich and they had to have left the Christian faith and found a spirituality Mm. of their own and they were happy. Because I was taught the same thing. If you leave the faith, you'll be happy for a little bit. It's a temporary high. And Mm. then you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. And I was really afraid of that. So I needed someone that had those things. Well, my first life coach was all of those things. He was gay. He was raised Christian. He left it and was super happy with spirituality. And he went from broke to making um, multiple six figures. And so just being in his presence and having access to his energy and the way he thought completely opened up my paradigm to what I thought was possible for me Mm. as a woman, as a queer person, as a former Christian, I thought maybe it's kind of doomed to always being broke. Um, Because a lot of queer people are broke. A lot of women get paid less than men. And if you leave everything you've ever known to be true, how are you ever going to make it? And so seeing this person, he represented to me what was possible. And it challenged me to rise to the occasion. If he can make it, Nicole, why can't you? And so after I worked with him, I then invested in another life coach who had, who symbolized very much the same thing. And then I invested in a mastermind of badass humans who are also rising up and saying, I'm releasing everything that doesn't serve me and stepping fully into who I came here to be. And I'm going to be really successful, really happy, really healthy, really wealthy. And that community is still the community that carries me today. They have supported me through my big move from the Midwest to California um, with me doing more and more explicit content with me um, wanting to become more wealthy. But there is an element of it's mostly online and virtual because mm. we are for all over the world calling yep. in to our awesome, amazing calls every week. And, and so there's still a hunger for in-person community, but there is really something interesting about how our energy attracts similarities. So our newest neighbor in our neighborhood was raised just like I am. And he's now an atheist and we have the best conversations because we yeah. totally get each other. And I think, God, thank you, God, universe, angels, whoever. Like that, of course, the one neighbor who moves in is like someone who has a very similar story to mine. And we like connect so deeply. And I have people like that all over, but I don't have a place where that all of them come together and hang out. Yeah. And there is that, that, that missing element, you know? Sure. Yeah. And it's, and it's a thousand times harder to make it happen in the midst of a pandemic as well. Right. <laughs> Cause yes, it's like, yes. <laughs> no one ever creates a great group hangout in the pandemic. <laughs> um, well, if they do, they all start coughing. So, uh, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, it's, it's great. And I think online is definitely, I mean, I think that's in many ways, the reason any of this is really happening to the degree it is happening because there is such a mass exodus right now and a, and a mass evolution. I would see it as an evolution of the growth. Yeah. I know a lot of people disagree. Um, I, I think it's the revival that Christians have been praying for for decades. Um, you know, it's just the next big revival. Uh, um, you know, the, the data is that people that leave aren't generally um, losing faith. Um, most yeah. of them claim to still have some form of spirituality. And so, um, to me, I think it's a growth. It's an evolution. 
Um, and I think a big part of that is the internet, you know, the internet creating safe spaces for people, creating camaraderie. You, you Google something. Does it really say that in the Bible? And you realize, oh, no, it doesn't. And then you go, oh, my gosh, I'll Google a bit more. And you go, oh, there's a Facebook group for people that think like that. Holy crap, there's 3,000 people that think this. Um, that's exciting because there's not 3,000 people on my street that think this, right? And there's not 3,000 yeah. people in my church that think this. I am probably the only person in my church that thinks like this. So maybe there's like four of us, but we're all too scared to say anything because we don't know who, who each other are. <laughs> um, so the internet is just this lifesaver. It really is. It's, it's, the, it's what the printing press was for Luther. It, it, it is for this, this kind of movement. Um, but it, yeah. it's not the same. You know, I mean, the pandemic has taught people more than ever that Zoom calls God, it's just not, no more Zoom calls, please. You know, like one on one Zoom calls are fine, but after a while, you're just like, oh, I'm so tired being on a Zoom call with 15 people. And I just finished the call and I want to, like, just, like, I don't know, eat 18 bags of chips and watch Netflix for 48 <laughs> hours just to recharge. Yeah. Um, it's there's something true. so I draining think- about it. It's not the same as yes. hanging out in the pub or something, no. you know? Yes, yeah. I have six hours of Zoom calls today. It's, and that's almost oh, every day God. between interviews and calls to my clients. and court. It's a lot. And it's, yeah. it's, you crave that in-person connection. And so like, I, my hope is after this pandemic is we're going to cultivate more intentionally in-person relationships. Mm-hmm. But one thing that is really cool, I, I'm so glad you call it an evolution and you see it as like the very thing that the church wants and needs because I totally agree with you. I you can be discouraged by the numbers of people leaving. I get really excited because to me, that's a symbol that something new is being born. And I'm always okay with new life. Like what is being born here? So even before I left the church and after I left the church, something I was really intentional about my last few years was cultivating community in my neighborhood. Because if mm-hmm. I'm not going to be getting that at my weekend services, I need to be getting it with people I'm doing life with. So every day I was literally taking walks around my neighborhood and any human that was outside, I would like... Hey, like these poor people, like unbeknownst to them, like, ah, like, let's be friends. And they're like, That's okay, so weirdo. But for like day after day, week after week, month after month, it literally took me years to yeah. build rapport and trust. I wasn't just crazy, but I genuinely cared about them. And after about like three or four years of like doing this, and then if I somehow missed my daily walk and I'd come out later, they'd be like, we missed you yesterday. Where were you? And I was like, oh my gosh, it's working. Then I was like, what do you think about doing a get together? So then we started doing um, quarterly get-togethers where we would all take turns hosting. Mm. And so we went from this very scattered, independent, slightly isolated neighborhood, which is true for a lot of places, to where we are all messaging each other and who's going to cook this, who's bringing that, who's... And it was really amazing to see what is possible if we're willing to be intentional about cultivating community where we are. And so that's now... Now that I'm new to California, I've been here for a year, I that's what I'm trying to do here is take the space where it's easy to say hi and go in the house to like, how can we be more intentional about getting together or cultivating community and connection in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a mass exodus slash slash evolution. And I think we're going to create some really beautiful things in the process. Yeah, absolutely. I I think we, we, we talk about the past in this kind of forlorn like oh the great past that we've lost the glory days. most of us that you know if we actually looked in the past none of us would want to live in those times um but there is something um kind of nostalgic about this idea of people living in more um small kind of cliqued communities you know with just a hundred people or so and everyone knows everyone and 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 that can have a downside to <laughs> to the upside as well um but there is something about that that we all you know maybe we watch a t- 
TV show and everyone's in this little village and we're like, oh, it would be nice. And you all go to the same shop or the same coffee shop and you all bump into each other and you know each other's names. Like kind of what you're saying. There's something about that that, that I think we're just wired for, it, right? Evolutionarily, we were built to be in smaller groups of people. That's, that's as many as we can have a healthy relationship with. It's as many as we can kind of um, keep up with and, and keep happy and connected and whatever. Um, and I think there's something about doing that locally that that makes a big change, right? You, you moved to California. I'm super jealous because I miss California every day of my life. I now live in the UK again. And God, I'm looking at sun. It's just gray and it's cold. And I miss California. Um, but in our area where we are, my, my wife discovered this app. It's called like Nextdoor. I don't know if it's in the States, but in the UK, it's great. And it literally is um, just kind of like a small radius around your house, like 0.5 miles. And it's like just a bulletin board that you can kind of post and say, hey, like, does anyone, I, I posted the other day, and I was like, hey, does anyone have a dog that they'd like to someone to sit while they go to work? Because I want a dog, but we can't really justify getting a dog. It's just a very big commitment. And I was like, I could look after a dog two days a week, though. That would be pretty awesome. Win-win. And so I posted that and three or four people were like, that would be amazing. How much would you charge? I'm like, oh no, I just, I just like to do it. I'm like, cool. And so now I'm looking after this dog and I'm like, that was easy. And now I know this new person and I've met them and I've met their daughter and their daughter goes rock climbing. And I'm like, oh, me and my wife go rock climbing. Do you go often? She said, well, I don't really have anyone to go with. I'm like, you could come with us and our friends if you want some time. And, you know, it's just these like little knock-on yeah. effects um, that are just so natural and so powerful and so meaningful um, and it doesn't have to be, hey, we all agree that the gays are bad, right? Or, hey, we all agree that, you know, you, you have to worship Jesus on a Sunday, right? You know, or whatever. Um, it's it's just a, hey, you're a human being and me too. Cool. That's enough. Um, there's something really beautiful about that. Um, and, and I think, but I think it needs intentionality and training that most of us haven't had, especially when we've grown up in these kind of communities that are already pre-made for us. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a muscle to be worked yeah. out and stretched for sure. Yes. And using the, like you said, using the internet intentionally, it's easy to just get sucked in and scroll mm. and not be intentional when like you have this powerful tool that can help you feel more isolated or more connected. Yeah. How are you using it? So you can use it just to scroll and numb yourself out, or you can use it to do next door and find ways to connect exactly. based on your heart's desire. Look at that, Phil. Like what I a know. beautiful example where you have this heart's <laughs> desire like I want a dog, can't own it. Maybe I'll see if someone has a dog, I can dox it. And it was a win-win scenario for everyone. You everyone win, they wins. win, their dog win, their daughter wins. So that's what I also teach my clients is like completely radical to what I taught in the church is when you trust your heart's desire, there is a win for everyone. Mm. There doesn't have to be a cost for anything. And you just have the perfect example where it was a win for everyone and there wasn't a cost. Like you're all winning. And that is the beauty and the possibility that's calling out to you when you choose to live a life based on your tuition, based on your inner desires. And that's why life for me and my clients, it becomes so breathtaking and like awe-inspiring. And it looks like, oh, you're just so lucky and you're, it's glamorous, but it all come, came down to, are you trusting the desires of your heart? Are you willing to like follow through on this nudge? Like, man, I might try to find a dog. And now like, you're super happy having this dog. This dog is super happy. This f couple or families are like, everyone's happier all because you followed your heart's desire. Yeah. Perfect beautiful. story. I love it. So though. talking of heart's desires, let's talk about what you do now and how you got to where you are now from being in the church, discovering you're queer, kind of transitioning out of that, figuring out what am I going to do? Like how do we get from pastor to, did you describe yourself as a stripper? Is that right? 
at the beginning. Kind How do you describe yourself? Like sex worker? Yes, Online exactly. model? Like, yes. there's so many different yes. terms. And I never know, like, Cam what is girl. a horrifically, like, um, offensive term or the right term. Or I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, cam girl. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Prostitute. Okay. I have a friend who calls me a prostitute. Like, it's just either all the above. Um, I, I think we went past her stripper just because it rhymed really well, but I'm okay with all of those. Prostitute, cam girl, sex worker. I'm really passionate about sex work being seen as a valid, valid yeah. work, as normal work, as good work. Um, so I've had several sex workers reach out to me saying, thank you so much for like normalizing and like putting the spotlight on how this is good because we need that more often. Mm. Um, so yeah, it is interesting going from pastor to stripper, uh, one extreme to the other. Very Nicole. When Nicole does something, she's all in. And can be used for good or bad, but I've been, been living my truth long enough that I, when I do it, it's always for the good. So what I do now is very much based on my heart's desire too. Like I have this interest in expressing myself sensually and sexually. And I had a lot to work through to get to the point where I am today, because mm. as you would know, the programming I was taught growing up as a kid about body, sex, shame, fear, guilt, lust, all the things, what I'm doing could not be more wicked or evil or deceitful than what I was taught in the church. But for me, I see this very sacred and very spiritual. Mm. And I feel like part of what I'm doing and what I'm a living embodiment of is bringing together things we've always tried to keep separate, spirituality and sexuality, um, holiness and self-expression. Like I feel like what I do is beautiful, is true, is holy, is sacred, is is life-giving. And, and anyone who just glances it at it on a surface level would to see like, oh, she's attention seeking. She had daddy issues. I've been like, oh, who, who molested you to make you do this? Like people have said really awful things, mm. which blows my mind that at the end of the day, we are so terrified of a woman who knows what she wants and lets herself have it. Mm-hmm. If I'm an adult interacting with consent with other adults, why is that so radical and threatening? And I feel like at the end of the day, it's because a woman knows her worth. And a woman is standing in her power and she cannot be easily thwarted. That's terrifying to systems and powers that yeah, be. Because um, at the end of the day, it's all it is. I know what I want and I let myself have it. And I don't have judgment or shame or guilt around it. And I think mm-hmm. there is such a collective hunger to live that way that when they when people see it in me, it either inspires them or it absolutely triggers them. But mm-hmm. for me, I'm like, all it is is me representing what is possible for you. Not that you have to become a sex worker, though I highly recommend it, but that you have the right to decide for <laughs> yourself. I'm not sure I've got it in me, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fantastic, it's but definitely not for everyone. Um, but that you have the right and that you have you have the know the knowing inside of you about what is meant for you. So the more I do this work, Phil, the more I love it. The more I drop shame around it, the more I allow myself to enjoy it, the more I attract people into my life who support me in it. That was a big fear I had. It's like, okay, well, Nicole, if you do this, you'll be completely isolated because what other mother is going to want to spend time around you? Like I had a lot of fear around my children's friends, moms. What are they going to think of me? Are they going to keep their children from my children because of the work that I do? I was afraid of dating again. What humans are going to support me in this work? And so like the more I'm in it, the more I have to address these really deep seated fears and work my way through them. And it's led me to this really beautiful place where I have moms who absolutely love me. I have people I'm dating on and off who absolutely support me. And Mm -hmm. it's like, wow, 
you really do have the power to create any reality you want, but it does require a level of deep self-trust, actually working through and not bypassing your worst fears and giving yourself enough time and space to call in the humans, the opportunities, the connections to show you that you still get to have it all. You're worthy of it all, no matter who you are, no matter Mm. what you do, because that is just your inherent birthright. Sure. I mean, so, so, there's so much we could unpack here. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Yes! There's so much fascinating stuff. I mean, something I come across frequently is I, I have a lot of women message me saying that they really struggle, even being out of church, sometimes for a decade, two decades. And they say, I still really struggle. Just like I'll wear a specific top that I thought mm-hmm. was really good in the shop and I'll take it home and then I'll put it on and then I'll just be like, oh my gosh, can I really wear this top? It's it's not got straps or, you know, whatever, right? I mean, it might be something so simple. Um, and, and it just highlights the degree to which women are taught that their bodies are this um, this weapon used against men. Men aren't in charge of lust, of course. Women are the reason that men lust. Um, uh, I don't know how that works for people that aren't straight, but... Um, you know, like, it's just the way it is. And women are a problem and it's woman's responsibility to like, you know, dress modestly, to not show any skin, to not, I mean, that that obviously um, isn't as extreme for some people as it is for others. And it has different effects on different people. Um, but for me, most women I know that have grown up in this have had to navigate through components of learning to appreciate their body, value their body, see their self as worth, not see themselves as basically veiled property, which is what this whole thing is, really. It's, it's It harks back to when women are property and we've taken off the table that women are property, but if we're going to be honest, they still are kind of property. All our mm-hmm. rights, all our way of seeing women, still very much property-based. Um, Thank you for and, and saying so, that. It, it, it's it's honest right i mean it's it's painful and we might even like some of the traditions still maybe we still like the father giving away the bride or even different things but this is all harkening back to this thing is property that you have purchased from me here you go and now she is your property you know someone kills your male son they must die someone kills your wife they owe you some money like you know yes. this is this is a weird dynamic and we've we've thankfully evolved a little bit from that which is good um but to me, like talking to women that are like, gosh, I struggle to be naked with my husband. I struggle to dress um, like in a short skirt in public. The the steps that you have taken um, are somewhat further along the line from that. You mean there's, there's, there's all kinds of layers of this. I was talking to my wife about this the other day, actually. I was, I'm just so fascinated by it. Um, but I mean, there's layers of, okay, I'll take a topless photo or I'll be a lingerie model or something, you know, like there's, that's a step. And then we go, okay, now I'm going to do full nudes and okay, now I'm going to do a video and now, okay, now I'm going to do some sort of sex uh, scene or, you know, there's all sorts of different layers of um, what that can look like. But you you talked about at the beginning, you mentioned in passing that you were going to be having sex with someone, I think. Is that right? Or did I read that in one of your articles? No, you're correct. That was an article. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, this is like, there's so many steps along the way here, but like they are all so far removed from how little Nicole was raised as a young girl in church. Like how did you even begin unraveling the shame, the guilt, the body issues, the modesty, whatever that is. Um, talk me through some of that. I love this. I love this (laughs) so much, Phil. Oh my gosh. I can so relate. I was raised like any skirts above the knee were bad. We had rulers. 
were at our school, we'd get on our knees and they would measure if it was off the ground, you'd get in trouble. Spaghetti straps were wrong. Two pieces were wrong. I mean, so many rules as a child that again, I absorbed that there's something wrong with me. Um, Maybe not with the way we perceive girls and women. And yeah, you know, this is something else I find really fascinating about us humans is I truly believe we know at a young age who we really are, what we actually want to do before society, family, religion, throw things on us. So my whole life, I've very few friends, I would say to them, and they would know, I've always wanted to be a stripper. I've always wanted to dance on bar tops. I've always wanted to be that kind of person, but quickly learned you can't say that in church. So these desires, I like stuff down, but some of my favorite movies, like in college, one of my favorite movies was Coyote Ugly. I was Watching literally girls, thinking of Coyote yes, Ugly when you said that's like a bar dancing, top. So I was like, yes. Yes. <laughs> dancing on the bar top is just like that. I would, I remember seeing that. I'm like, oh, I, I loved it. And my guy friends in college took the movie from me because they said, this is not appropriate for you. But then they would go off and watch rated R right. movies where they're violently killing everyone. And I'm like, and that's okay. Like, oh, you can't. And we're, ki- we're not kidding ourselves. Your guy friends took that movie off you and watched Coyote yes. Ugly thinking, oh, God, yes, all these hot girls doing dances. 100%. Um, and I noticed because no. I was a good Christian boy watching Coyote Ugly with exactly the same motives. Um, <laughs> I love this so much. Yes, I've always had this desire. And whenever especially my last few years when I started going to more queer spaces and I would go to burlesque shows and drag shows. And I lean to my friends like, Oh my God, my next lifetime, I'm totally doing this. And they're like, why your next lifetime? And I'm like, it's too late for me. Like I can't do this in my mid thirties. Like I'm a mother and like, like Nicole, you're ridiculous, but the desire has always been there. Mm. And so really what this whole season of life I'm in right now is simply honoring the desire that's always been there. It's not new. It's not like I'm like crazy. And I'm just like, I'm having a midlife crisis. I'm just dying. It's like, it's always been there. I just always had to stuff it down. And, and I want to say it with this caveat because I want people here in this to have this knowing is anytime you decide to do something, you are not obligated to stay with it a moment longer than you want to. Mm. I could decide tomorrow I'm done and I would not regret it at all. And it doesn't make me a fake. It doesn't make me a fraud. It doesn't mean anything. It just means I've decided I want something else. So whatever you end up wanting to do with your life, you can say yes to it, knowing that any moment you can change your mind. Just putting that out there because people are like, mm-hmm. you're going to regret this or you just wait till this high burn, you know, burns off. Like, well, maybe in a year I don't want to do anymore. So what? Sure. But yes, trying to go from not wearing, you know, anything above the knee and no spaghetti straps to being fully nude, fully spread for people to enjoy is quite elite. And the journey that got me there is realizing a who I am is inherently good, not wicked or bad. B, God made my body. Why do we have so much shame around it? And C, if if we're adults and we're consenting, why is this why why can't this be a really positive experience? And so what I have found is before if I was doing anything cute and men would catcall or say things, I would be like horrified and objectified and angry and embarrassed. Now when men do that, not that it's okay, but I actually see their deep, the deeper heart to it, which is they just see something beautiful or pretty. And that's them trying to compliment it. It may not be the best form of compliment. It may not be the best way to communicate to another human. Like, Hey, I see something in you that's really attractive, but I see that. And so I'm able to stay in my power and not make it mean anything about me and not make it mean anything about them, but simply acknowledge, say, thank you. And sometimes if I'm feeling really super feminist that day, like, hey, appreciate that, but there are better ways to do that, right? And so what happens inside my website where people pay to see me nude mm. is 
they'll say certain comments and I can always see their heart behind it. And like, I think part of why they come here is I don't shame them for their desires. I don't shame them for what they feel, what they desire. Like they can ask me for, uh, uh, not explicit content. Well, that too, custom content. (laughs) They can ask for custom content. And I love doing that because to me, it normalizes their desires that you're allowed to have preferences. Sure. Yeah. And I, they also know I have the right to say, I'm not comfortable with that. So if they ask me for something, would you be willing to create this kind of content? And I don't want to, I say they're like, Hey, thanks for asking. I'm not comfortable doing that. But is there something else that you would like? There's no shame. It's just pure open com- communication between adults who know what they want. And they try to see if it works between us to make it work. If yeah. it does awesome. If it doesn't, it doesn't shame is never required. Mm. Wow. That's, I mean, that's quite something. And I, I, I have this weird fixation on like the mindset of people that do sex work. And I think it, it comes down to my own background as a teenage boy growing up in church, pastor's kids, all the purity culture, like my whole relationship with God for the first, like God, 20 years was somehow interwoven with sex. Like it was a hundred percent like can I pray to God to ask him for something? Well, I have to then like run the filter. Like when was the last time you watched porn? Like when did you last have this lustful thought? Like, well, have I repented enough of my life? Good enough. Just everything like that. But um, I'll frequently um, scour um, ask me anything's on Reddit. I don't know if you've come across um, yes. Reddit. And the, but I love when different sex workers, oh, hey, I'm a prostitute. Ask me anything. Hey, I'm a cam girl. Ask me anything. And I love like, especially people that are working in ethical porn. Um, I, to be honest, I'm quite fascinated by people that haven't worked in ethical porn and, and worked in very unethical porn because that's very important. And we need to raise awareness of that massively. Yes. But people that work in ethical porn and you read the answers to their questions that that, that they get um, and you just think, wow, these people are totally normal, put together people. They're not any of the, you know, God, the church would not describe these people as totally normal, well put together, blah, blah, blah. But right, it's the things that you're saying, oh, they must have been abused, or they must be a Jezebel, or they've got a demon, or, you know, who knows what else, or they're just <laughs> acting out, they're rebelling against the church, or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and it, it, it just fascinates me looking at the mindset of people, a lot of people going, you know what? I really love my body. I love expressing it this way, whatever it is. And I just think, yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I don't I don't have an issue with people using their erotic capital for whatever it is that they um they feel that they want to use it for. If they're gonna enjoy it, if it's consensual, whatever it is. Um but it does really fascinate me like how people um evolve in that, how people um, growing that. So something that fascinates me that I've seen in a lot of these people that I've kind of come across is that, and certainly from my massive amount of years of watching porn as a good repressed Christian, um, <laughs> now I'm not within that world. I like never watch porn really rarely, but <laughs> back so when I was funny. a Christian, obsessed. Um, yeah. So who knows that when I was in leadership, when I was traveling the world, speaking about Christianity, porn all the time yeah now eh, whatever um fascinating but you know there's a component of um stuff like porn there's always this one-upmanship component to it mm. um there's always a dynamic of people pushing their boundaries people that get addicted to porn constantly looking for a new high a new next level even people within porn in the industry certainly within unethical porn i I, th- I don't know how much this goes on in ethical porn where people set their own boundaries and limits and stuff but certainly where that's less so much for thing there's always a push of like oh well you've done that before can you do this or we've seen you topless but can we see that um do you ever feel 
kind of that component, that pressure, all that kind of stuff going on to be pushing yourself beyond where you're comfortable? Do you, do you have things of going, no, this is my line and I'm comfortable there. And that's open to change. I'm sure like, you know, you're, you're, you're able to decide what you want to do, but do, do you feel a pressure from when people are going, Hey, I want you to do this. And you go, no, I'm not going to do that. But is there a part of you going probably will at some point though, <laughs> I can see that trajectory or like, how does that, that yeah. play in? Fan- I love it. Fantastic question. I don't feel as pressure. I feel a desire. Mm. So I never feel external pressure to do anything beyond what I want to do in the current moment. Even though I have a bunch of people requesting this kind of content, like there's no pressure from them. And that's something I love about my people who sign up for my site. They are so honoring of my boundaries and my, what I want. So when they ask me, Nicole, will you create this content? I'm always like, thank you so much for asking. Cause I think it's incredibly vulnerable to ask for what you want. I will yeah, always honor absolutely. that. And then I say, I'm not doing that at this time. Um, but if I ever do, you guys will be the first to know. And their, their response always Phil, is mm. no problem. Love your content. Thank you so much just pure respect and support uh, of what I want to do. And, and I know there is a part of me, like I probably will keep evolving. This is who I am, how I am. And that it's safe for me to do so. What I can do is I can decide, okay, I'm going to try this because it feels exciting. It's next level. And then maybe I don't like it. I'm allowed to like, okay, I'm going back. I don't want to do yeah. that. But that's how we kind of learn what our limit is. Is sometimes when we push past it and it's, mm, I kind of don't like that. And we go back to what we want. But we want to do it not ever out of pressure, not ever out of fear, not ever out of rules, but out of what feels right and good and true for me. Mm. So again, continually checking in with myself. And even with like, what I even love about my website, OnlyFans, and I'm so glad you brought up ethical porn because it's not talked about enough and it's incredibly important and it's a great alternative to conventional porn. And, and what I love about OnlyFans, it feels very ethical to me. I decide the terms. I decide my conditions. I set the boundaries. I set the price. My safety is the number one priority. There's, there's nothing like, I don't have to sacrifice anything to get what I want. I don't sacrifice my safety. I don't sacrifice my income. I don't have to sacrifice my boundaries. I get to call all the shots on OnlyFans. And so I think like if there's women or people who want to get into sex work of some kind, OnlyFans has been a great alternative, especially during a pandemic where you can fulfill your desires connect with other humans, make as much money as you want and be in total safety and peace and honoring of your boundaries the entire time. So to me, this is like the ethical version of porn in regards to whether you call it sex work or cam girl or self-expression. And I just want this for everyone where if you decide to do this work, you can do it in a way that completely honors your boundaries, your preferences, your values, and you never have to sacrifice any of them. And my one example is, or my work is just one example of that. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, I just think of like a healthy sex relationship between a couple or or whatever combinations go on, but like, you know, frequently in a healthy relationship, the couple are hopefully communicating, having healthy communication about what they like, what they might like, what they would like to try, what they're not really comfortable trying. And they may well go, Oh, let's try that. And then go, Oh God, let's not try that again. Or maybe one of them goes, I really like that. And I was like, I didn't like that so much. Can we like not? Is that okay? Maybe we can revisit that later or, you know, but there's this healthy back and forth in conversation. And I guess it's just having that conversation with yourself in a sense, um, you know, yes. and, and in a sense, easier to do, I guess, because there's a little bit less vulnerability and in, in, in self-awareness. You're just talking with yourself about, do I want to do that? Do I not? Um, but that's really, um, it's really, really good. And how, 
it, it, it's really interesting to me that you talk about the people that follow you, your fans, people that are requesting you. Um, like you have a healthy relationship with them as well. Like it, that fascinates me because, you know, that's a, a common trope is that like, you know, oh, people that are like, you know, paying people to, you know, pose topless to do a sexy to whatever like these are like creepy people they they're like this they're that there's all kinds of narratives about people that are watching um porn as well even when it's ethical um we still have a very um dismissive view of someone that would watch um porn um can can you speak to that as well like what, what are your thoughts on that yes like this is so important because and i think that's why so many people are drawn to my OnlyFans page because they see me as a whole person, not just as like a sex object, which is fine if you want to do that too. But I can't tell you how many messages I got, especially after being on this morning in the UK mm. uh, with Amon and Ruth, where people message me saying, wow, your personality, your light, your heart just shined through everything you said. You are so much more than what like the tabloids are making you out to be. I'm signing up for your OnlyFans page. Like they saw substance there. And there's yeah. something I think in, in our human psyche, our human craving of like yes we want the sexiness but we're also craving community and connection and i offer that for my people inside only fans mm -hmm. like they're getting sexy nicole but they're also getting someone who genuinely cares about you and so because i have that i cultivated that space and energy when they come their whole self is welcome there they don't have to just bring like their sex side i like i tell me about your work tell me about your your travels tell me about who you are what do you mm. enjoy doing and we have these amazing conversations as a group but even in our messages one-on-one that are just so life-giving and they're such good humans and mm. i love how respectful they are like it sounds silly but like they'll be like is it okay if i send you a dick pic i'm like thank you so much for asking me for just just sending me a dick pic a lot like, of people do not ask <laughs> yes i'm gonna give credit where credit is due like thank you for asking and even for me, like we hear like the trope of like, oh, men who send dick pics are really gross. But the way I view it to send a dick pic is incredibly vulnerable. You just mm. sent me a picture of like the most intimate part of yourself. I now have the power to absolutely ridicule you, ridicule you or like build you up. I have that power. And like, so when someone sends it to me, I see it as like, wow, they really trust me. And maybe I, I think I give a lot of benefit of the doubt to people. Um, but I take it like as an honor of like, how can I build someone up and like have them walk away with a better experience than when they first entered my space. And, and they'll even feel that they'll, it's not even just like how I respond, but it's like the energy. They're like, wow, like mm. there's something more here than just like your typical shallow version or understanding of sex workers or people who subscribe to that kind of work. It's written. Like, I can't tell you how many messages I get, Phil, who say, I found your story. And I wanted to support you in some way. And he, I'm so happy I can do this because they're literally paying me every month and they're doing it to support me. That means a lot to me. Like this is yeah. how I make majority of my income. So it's not just like a side thing. Like this is what provides my livelihood for me and my children and this, the, this life I'm building. I'm deeply grateful to people who consciously and intentionally choose to be a part of that. And yeah. there's, a, there's a community there. Yeah. No, that's just beautiful. I mean, I'm the same. I, I I do everything I do for free and it's entirely through kind of Patreon and things like that. And and there's an element, I mean, OnlyFans is basically a X-rated Patreon, right? It's an adult entertainment mm -hmm. version of Patreon. I, I know that other people are on OnlyFans as well, but 
that's the kind of gig, right? You're creating communities and support systems for entertainers um, in a different field that Patreon apparently aren't so keen on. Um, but um, can, can you tell me, because we're wrapping up um, not long, and I, I really want to go into how has your spirituality um, been informed through what you do now? Like, how has that affected yeah. how you see spirituality the divine i don't know if you believe in a god where you stand what you what that looks yeah. like for you but but what what has happened to your views um uh, in the world of spirituality through the 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 journey you have taken yes I, it goes back to what you said earlier phil where the people who are leaving the church in droves still feel very spiritual and i'm i am one of those i have never felt more spiritual in my life i have never felt more connected to god in my life than i do now and i feel like so much of what i'm doing now is returning to who i always was this beautiful child of the divine who is safe who is worthy who is deserving and where pleasure is seen as a good thing not something mm-hmm. to fear and i did a, a nude photo shoot a couple weeks three, three weeks ago and i did it in the woods and i like laughingly joked to myself like oh my god I'm Eve in the garden I just brought it all the way back bitches and it like cracked me out because I felt like like literally I peeled off all the layers like belief wise but also Mm. clothing wise and I'm standing here in nature as God had originally created and I found it really beautiful and holy Mm. and so this journey has been one long journey home to who I am that feels very spiritual very holy very sacred and I think it's why people feel so drawn to me because I'm not just your trope of a sex worker. There's substance and soul here and really beautiful, sexy things that come with it. So I've left the Christian faith and have very like spiritual and more woo beliefs. But when you've been indoctrinating something that like that your whole life, as much as you try to leave it behind, it will always be a part of you. It will always inform you to a degree and it'll always influence you in some way. So I've just accepted that as a part of myself. I mean, that even me saying, oh, I'm Eve back in the garden. That is a very Christian way of thinking and perceiving me. So like as much as I've left it, it's still very part of me. And I've just accepted that. And I'm excited to see where it still has yet to lead me. Yeah. It's, it's such an exciting thing to start to grow outside of a box, you know, and um, when you step out of the box, you, you you look back and go, oh, yeah, that's where I was. That's who I grew. It's like looking back at yourself as a kid or something. You you look back and think, oh, God, what an idiot I was or whatever. But you don't go, that wasn't me. That was that's who made me who I am. Um, yeah. And and whilst a lot of that can be like, God, that's what made me who I am. And that's why I'm in therapy. <laughs> um, a lot of it can be. And that's why I am. An artist. That's why I can yeah. speak so well publicly. That's why I can, um, you know, ha- create foster great community around something that and other people in this area aren't creating the same sort of amazing communities or whatever it is. You know, like y- you're going to be bringing stuff from your journey that is yeah. is beautiful and very unique um, because of it. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really interesting. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I think we need. We don't need to focus as much like getting rid of it at all. Like it's kind of we want to add like anger and hurt like be, feeling like you've been duped your whole life sure. throwing it all away i went through that stage and to more just accepting this is where i've come from and it doesn't have to define you it doesn't have to be the end of you this can just be the catalyst to a whole new beginning mm. and so i now i see my past and my upbringing as just that this is just a starting point to a damn good story as one of my life coaches yeah. once said and now i'm fully available for the story that i want to live and this just helped me bring me to this point I love it. I absolutely 
Love it, Nicole. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat about this stuff. And man, I feel it's, the thing is with this, what I do seems like sex just comes up every podcast, any person I talk to, any <laughs> I context. It. it was always going to come up with you, of course. But I mean, it's just such a huge area and it is such a, a massive um, fracture in so many people's lives that have come out of kind of um, Christianity, evangelicalism, whatever it might look like, these kind of more fundamental um, approaches to to sexuality can cause some real harm and um, whether people agree or not with um, whether they would draw lines in the same place that you draw them I'm sure people can definitely see that there has been some radical healing of that and and freedom for you to grow through that and, and I think that's a, a beautiful and exciting thing um, and I'm excited to see how, how this all pans out for you but it sounds like it's doing really well which is which is great i mean that's the dream and i think there's a component right everyone's waiting for you to do badly so they can say see we told you like you know anyone that leaves everyone wants them to screw up so that it kind of validates them for staying almost um yes you know, exactly it just shows to. it reveals who they really are and has nothing to do with you and yeah. it's kind of sad but true for a lot of people yeah. But I mean, honestly, uh, the amount of people I talk to that, 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 and there's no shame in this because everyone's journey is, is their own and everyone has to come out in their own um, space, how they feel safe. And, and some people are not safe to do that either. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 how hard it is for some people to just, you know, tell their family, hey, I'm not sure I believe in hell anymore. Or, hey, I'm not so sure God really has a problem with gay people. They're not even saying I'm not a Christian or I'm gay or I'm not going to church anymore. It's just a, a, a slight thing. And they're like, gosh, that is huge. The thought of, um, you know, uh, what you're doing, being so brave about it, being so open about it as well, so public, you know, and not worrying, oh, gosh, will my kids have friends at school? Oh, gosh, will you know, every person I know rejects me and I'll be die alone in my apartment or whatever, you know, like to, I mean, maybe you have had those thoughts, right? <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the head down, carry on Nicole move. Um, but you know, to power through that, to come beyond that and to, and to really um, show people a, a beautiful way of being authentic and open and real mm-hmm. and, and to truly chase your desires and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really beautiful. And I really appreciate yeah. you do that. Thank you so much. Yes, Phil, really thank you so much. And that is my hope through all of this. That there's many hopes, but one of them is if I can make this hard pivot from one extreme to another and come out on the other side, happier, healthier, and wealthier and more fulfilled than ever before, then whatever you feel called to do, the same thing is possible for you. So as scary as it is, I promise you what is on the other side of your heart's desire is everything and more than you can imagine. And it is so worth it because you are so worth it. Thank you for hearing my story. Thank you for having me, Phil. I feel very grateful. This was a fantastic conversation. Really, really appreciate you. Cool. Well, maybe we can check in next year or something and see how you're getting on and and dive in a bit more. How can people track with what you're doing? And there's probably a whole spread of, um, you know, ways, because I know you've got your your coaching stuff, you've got your OnlyFans, you've you've put stuff on YouTube. So I I think I glanced at YouTube and it looked like you haven't been as active on there recently. Is that fair to say? Correct. Um, So is it mostly OnlyFans kind of um, and your coaching? Is that your kind of two main things that you're kind of focusing on? Yeah, those are my two main businesses. You can, I'm really active on social media. Media. So Facebook and okay. Instagram, I'm super active on. So come say hi, come follow me. I always interact as much as I can in the comments, in my messages. That's how Phil and I found each other. Mm-hmm. The, the power of Instagram, the power of social media. Um, I have a website, NicoleMitchell.com. 
Um, but come over and say, hey, I'd love to have you guys. Awesome. Great. I'll make sure. And tell me about your coaching. Tell, tell me just briefly, because we've got yes. a few more minutes and I, I want people yes. to know like what is available yes. here. Because oh. like, like people are saying, you know, like you, you're saying there, the person that you saw out when you thought I need a coach, you, you thought I need someone that ticks the boxes of where am I yes. going? And I guarantee some people are hearing what you're talking about and they might not be thinking I'm going to become a cam girl or whatever. Um, that's not my thought. Um, but I look at you and I think, gosh, this is someone that really knows who they are. They're someone that really is pursuing what they're about. They're chasing their dreams. They're very successful. You're ticking boxes for people who are going, oh, maybe I need to look at some coaching or look at something along those lines. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about that. What, what does that look like for people? So I really highly recommend foot, life that's coaching. That's why I'm leaning really weird. <laughs> You're allowed. I highly recommend life coaching for everyone. It, not that any, again, not that anyone needs it, but if it resonates with you, like look into it. And I always tell people, you want to hire not just any life coach. You want to hire a life coach that you resonate with, that you, that mm. is emulating a life that you want to live, and not saying exactly like mine, but the elements that you know, like happy, thriving, successful making this much money. Um, someone that inspires you that hasn't, has you keep coming back for more, like that's the coach you want to hire. And so for me, what I offer, I offer one-on-one coaching. So that's like my premium package where you have a weekly hour call with me every week for six, uh, for six months or 12 months, depending on how long you sign up for and unlimited support between our calls through texting and mm. voice support. So you want powerful support to get you to the next level and you want to get there really fast. One-on-one coaching is the way to go. I also have a mastermind I run, and this is really great if you're wanting community. You want to be a part of a container where you're not the only one rising up, saying yes to your dreams. You don't want to feel you're like you're alone or you're crazy. This is such a sacred container where we also have weekly group coaching calls, and then we have unlimited, they have unlimited support in a group uh, Voxer chat in between our calls. Such a beautiful place. And then I offer all kinds of digital programs. I have a, cl- a class called Sexy and Free, which is all about feeling safe in your self-expression and your sexuality, and even how to get into modeling. If that's something you want to do, I have a class called how to unfuck yourself, which is all about getting out of your own way and stepping into your power and actively creating the life of your dreams. I have a class called how to monetize your shit. Cause if you can learn how to monetize your personality, your energy, your essence, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, you can make a lot of money. So I have like 10 classes or courses you can take online that are just so good and is a great introduction to personal development work if you're wanting that, um, or as a side nourishment as you do coaching. And all my one-on-one clients get free access to all my courses and programs. But I love it. I have something for everyone. I post daily content for free for everyone because I want everyone to have access to this information. And if you apply what I post for free, your life will change. Mm. And then I have anywhere from $200 to $25,000 packages just depending what you want and where you're at in life. And I love it because I want to reach as many people. I want to help as many people because I want, I want you to have your best life and you can have it so much sooner than you think. Amazing. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure that there are links to your social media, to different stuff in the, uh, in the show notes. And so people can like look below this video or on their phones and they'll find it. Um, But yeah, I assume if people just find you on Instagram, there'll be a link in the bio. Most people are on Instagram. Yes. They can go from there and, and, and they'll find most of your stuff. But yeah, Nicole, yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoy the rest of your Zoom calls today. It's, it's early for you. I'm finishing my day and you're probably just starting it. Um, yes, but uh, yes. yeah, I hope you don't feel too much of the Zoom lag by the end of the day. Um, but it's thank been really you. lovely having so you on. I appreciate you. I really appreciate it. It's been so good. All, All right. right. Well, Take care. Love you. Catch you later.
Bye. Okay. Bye. All right. So that was Nicole Mitchell. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I found it really enjoyable, really fun. Um, Nicole's great person, really very easy to engage with. And uh, I do encourage you to, um, you know, check out her stuff. If, if that struck with, uh, like resonated with you, if, if you thought, gosh, yeah, I'd love to get some coaching from Nicole, um, check out her website. It's NicoleMitchell.com. Nicole's with a K. Um, if you want to check out some of her more uh, not safe for work stuff, modeling, things like that. Um, I'd check out her Instagram. It's uh, Mitchell Nicole. Um, and I'll put the link to those in the show notes. Bear in mind, like I said, these links may not be safe for work. Uh, her website is. Her website is. Um, it's all about the coaching stuff. And um, you're not going to uh, find yourself in any trouble with that. Um, but yeah, the, the Instagram is going to be a little bit more provocative, a little bit more uh, sexual. Uh, and by a little bit, I mean a lot more really than the coaching website. <laughs> if you want to connect with other people that are going through a deconstruction journey, if maybe you have gone on a similar journey as Nicole, maybe not ended in the same place, but you have found yourself unraveling your faith and it feels lonely, you maybe have lost community, friends, family, things like that, I'd encourage you to check out the deconstructionnetwork.com. It's a free resource to find other people that have um, also um, unraveled their faith to some degree or another, um, and it helps you connect with them in a local area. Um, you can search you know, a radius around where you live and find other people and connect with them, and, and it can be a real, um, just a, a real godsend, no pun intended, um, that um, can help people when they're feeling very lonely, isolated, as this journey can be. Um, so do check out the deconstructionnetwork.com. Um, if you appreciate what I'm doing, everything I do is free. All these podcasts, resources, Deconstruction Network, all of that's free. Um, I talk with people day in, day out all over um, uh, the web, mostly on Instagram. If you need to talk to someone, please find me on Instagram. I'm just Phil Drysdale. All of that I do for free. It's a full-time job. If you'd like to support what I do, you can do that via my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash phildrysdale or phildrysdale.com slash partner if you want to do it outside of Patreon. Um, as a thank you, you get access to a private community. Um, we have great discussions on there about all sorts of amazing and interesting things. Um, there's also a monthly Zoom and there's a few other perks if you want to support me um, for a little more. Um, but just as little as five bucks a month can make a huge difference and help me pay the bills and, and keep doing this for free, which, which is my heart to, to keep doing this uh, in any capacity I can. Um, all right, that's enough from me. I'll see you on Thursday for another podcast. Ciao.